when you hey. start record let me know okay wait okay are you recording i am recording okay you ready for this noise yes nice <laughs> Welcome to the Sprocket Podcast. We are simplifying the good life. I'm Armando Luna. And I'm Joan Pettit, broadcasting from our homes in Portland, Oregon, nestled in the heart of Cascadia. This is a show where we bring you somewhat irreverent conversations about the intricacies of thinking locally with a global perspective and enjoying the best that life has to offer along the way. Covering bicycling, trains and transit, adventures and life hacks. And today, our friend Kimber Peterson on bike things and gardens and much, much more. We'll see where the conversation takes us. Nice. How's it going, Armando? Uh, It's going busy for Monday. Mondays are always busy. We'll have to talk to uh, the others about changing the days. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, yeah. We record on Mondays, and today has been a particularly hectic day for me as well. But fortunately, I have uh, excellent company of you and Kimber coming up in a few minutes, and an excellent beer, an Elliott IPA from Ex Novo, a local nice. brewery right in my neighborhood. What are you drinking tonight? I'm drinking water. I started uh, the whole thirty today. So no alcohol for me. I'm glad that water is at least part of the whole thirty. <laughs> well, I was going to make bubbly water, but I didn't get a chance <laughs> to even do that. So. You don't even have bubbles in your water. What do you get to eat today? Uh, what did I have? Uh, I got what did I eat today. I had lunch. I had like a burger with no bun and some salad. So you had a slab of meat. Slab of meat, and then the <laughs> breakfast I had. For breakfast I had an egg salad. Oh, how was, was that? An egg, two eggs on a bed of lettuce. <laughs> I am now understanding why you were so jazzed about having a cinnamon bun yesterday. Oh my gosh, it was so good, so good. Oh, and then I ordered pizza for dinner, and it was delicious. I I overate that. Good. So, so you were you were totally doing the thing of like last meal thing, right? Last meal. Yep. Yeah. Well, um, I just want to take a men- a moment to mention our uh, sponsor because they have some big news. So, our sponsor, as always, uh, is the Beer Mongers on Southeast Twelfth and Division. They are nationally recognized as the top beer bar in Oregon. And here's some really cool news. Uh, it looks like sandwiches are returning to the beer mongers. Oh, really? Um, and it looks like these, I don't know, Brock sent something along. It says, sandwiches return to mongers today, and that was a few days ago, featuring our friends Ninth and Fitzwater. So, yeah, I think that you can you can go and get a sandwich now. Nice. At the beer mongers. So, yeah, you can get beer. And a sandwich. Or maybe a slab of meat or some eggs <laughs> that you want to call a salad. There we go. So, yeah. Well, do you feel uh, refreshed and renewed already? Or <laughs> it's a little uh, soon, isn't it? Yeah, probably too soon for that. Mm-hmm. Well, you look fantastic. <laughs> Thanks. 
All right. Well, what else have you been up to? What did I do this weekend? I don't even remember. Someone asked have me. Have you that been this on morning. your bike this weekend? Yeah, I, um, I've ran a, ran a few errands on my bike this weekend, so that was good. I need to do some more rides for the the midnight bike ride. Oh, that's right. You or, told me last week you were feeling uh, a little stiff, and so you went out for a midnight bike ride at eight p.m. Correct. <laughs> right? <laughs> Is that like a time zone thing? Like it's a midnight bike ride in Nova Scotia? I so think that's then just you the go. name of it. <laughs> Here, let me grab the uh hold on a second oh he's getting up he's going he's going into the other room i'll narrate this through zoom now he's coming back and what has he got i want to make sure it's the midnight bicycle league challenge oh it's a thing yeah it's uh sean granton from mm, mm-hmm. urban adventure league here in portland oregon has put it together and so it's similar to like how we're doing the uh Winter bike light hashtag. Mm-hmm. So it's fun. It's just something something to get me out, get me doing things. And so you don't have to go at midnight. No, it's just you have to go when it's dark. Oh well, that's not that difficult right now, is it? Definition of night: night is any time between sunset and sunrise. I agree with that definition of night. You do not have to write specifically at midnight. I wonder if you get bonus points for writing at midnight, though. Is this um, being tracked in any sort of formal oh, way? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got a little booklet here. I'm supposed to track my rides. Uh, date, ride number, sunset time, sunset sunrise time, bike use, location, length of ride, miles or kilometers, the weather and the ride description. And then there's a little space to um, either put a photograph or you can draw a little drawing of your bike ride. Oh, that's very nice. How many rides are you supposed to do a week? Oh, that's really cute. So, oh, it's like an official reporting journal. So did you like send a few dollars? Oh, it's Mm -hmm. like a whole little thing. How long is this thing going on for? Uh, I think it ends February. But I think Friday or Saturday was the last official day to register and, and complete all the rides. Oops. Okay. Well, <laughs> guess we won't include it in our event calendar. I think I talked but, about it a, a few weeks ago. So. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, good. Hopefully, it maybe we have December. some folks. Maybe we have some folks who are participating who can who can tell us about it. Oh, I'm sure we we do. They can call mm-hmm. in, call and leave a voicemail. Yeah. So. For anybody who hasn't figured it out, Armando would very much like it if somebody would call it <laughs> and leave a voice message for us. 503-847-9774. Did you look that up or did you just know it? I'm looking at the show notes. Oh, but I thought maybe you were so excited for someone to call in that you just knew it. Oh my gosh, I just finally memorized my Google voice phone number. I never had that memorized, but I finally did. Hmm. I know uh, my childhood best friend's phone number. I know my driver's license number from several years ago in North Carolina, and I don't know my kids' phone numbers right now. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> Not off the top of my head. Yeah, like sometimes I think, what if I went to jail, as one does, and I needed to call someone? I would call my childhood best friend's <laughs> phone number. <laughs> Or like 
I'd call my mom because I know her number. But then who would she call? Who would she call? Because she doesn't know anybody's number either. We'd have to do a big phone chain. Not that I have any She would call the Sprocket Podcast. She would call 503-847-9774 and she would leave a voice message. And we would get it right away. Saying, uh, somebody go get Joan. She's in jail for for disorderly conduct on a bicycle. She's in jail for having improperly lighted her bike <laughs> in pursuit of seasonal festivities. <laughs> I think it's a noble cause worthy worthy of arrest. <laughs> uh, for folks who can't see Armando, we're just... <laughs> He 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 was pretending to be about to say something. I was holding my index finger up, and mm-hmm. my mouth was open, <laughs> and my neck was protruding forward. <laughs> That's like the alt text, the podcast exactly. alt text. Exactly. <laughs> hmm. Well, so, you know, we're just running this whole thing tonight, but we actually have the official audio equipment. Yeah, I have the the Roadmaster. Yeah, so this is this is a big night for us. We can't mess it up. They're going to kick us off. Yeah, well, look, I can do this now. <laughs> oh no! Anytime you're just we gonna... launch, I'm just going to leave it on the whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Brock, you just try to get that out of there. <laughs> Yeah, there's a bunch of other uh, gizmos on this doohickey that I don't know how to use yet. So, Ooh, could be for an exciting night. <laughs> what an exciting hopefully I'm recording podcast. it, and then hopefully uh, it, I can be heard. I can hear you. Okay. So, And you're recording yeah, wouldn't also. It be funny? So. <laughs> yes, wouldn't it be funny if Brock like, started playing and it was just me? <laughs> just one side. <laughs> just one side. <laughs> Nothing else. That would be awesome. <laughs> well, it's been raining all day today, and it's feeling a little gloomy. But on the other hand, I think the days are getting a little longer. Like yes. at the end of the work day. Still light at five. When I, yeah, when I went to the front window, I could actually still see outside. So that was, that was nice. That felt like a little bit of a relief from all the, I don't know. All the dreariness of this pandemic winter. Yeah, somebody I, I follow on Twitter posted, oh, only two more weeks until we see sunlight. Because she had a um, an app. It was like a vitamin D app that mm-hmm. will tell a you. vitamin D app? Yeah, tell so me like more. How much, like how much, you get, <laughs> how much vitamin D you get based upon the sun being in the sky. And so, of course, for the next two weeks, there's not going to be any sun in the sky. So it's low vitamin D. I, is that a real, actually effective app? I think it's just measuring cloud cover. I, I don't know. Oh. I don't know how vitamin D, I don't know how you get vitamin D from, from the sun. Well, you stand in the sun. <laughs> and, and vitamin and there D. there we can't do that. So. Vitamin D, I recently learned. Are you sitting down? Is everybody yes. sitting down? No, I'm not. I'm standing not, up, actually. Uh, well, brace yourself. It's not a vitamin. It's a hormone. 
Oh, I think I did see that. Did you post that? Yeah, that's because I got really excited about it on Twitter. Somebody posted it and I got really excited. (laughs) But I did, somebody said that, but I did look it up first. And I read a little bit about it because, like, your body actually makes it, right? So the the sun, the sun, which we hear tell still exists in some places in the world. (laughs) You know, when it hits your skin, your body does, I'm not going to try to explain it because it's, because I don't understand it and I don't have the vocabulary, but it's a, it's a hormone, not a vitamin, hmm. but we, I think they call it a vitamin cause they put it in food and stuff, but I'm going to make a little note, vitamin D app. D minder is what it's called. D M I N D E R. That sounds D minder. D minder. Oh, I feel like that sounds like something punitive in school. <laughs> like you're doing really badly. You're getting a D. So this thing is pinging (laughs) before you get an F because you barely have enough time to turn it around. (laughs) That is, that's another good way of using a D minder. It's a reminder that you're going to fail because you have a D. Mm -hmm. See, and you're going to fail if you, if you get a D and you don't turn it around and you're going to fail if you don't get enough D. Or if you don't make enough D. There's a lot of ways to fail. There's just lots of ways to fail. Well, vitamin D is hard. It's hard. It's hard to make enough vitamin D here in the northern cloud covered rainy. uh, (laughs) It's not a tundra. What are we in (laughs) this this climate? Hard to make enough vitamin D. Have you been writing, Jill? My bicycle. Your bicycle, <laughs> yes. Uh, no, I did. I w- I ran a couple errands a few weeks ago. Like it's been long enough that I, I don't remember. So I had a couple errands to run the other day, and I was going to do it by bike. But I don't know. Things have just been a little bit hectic lately. I am trying to make a little more of a point of of doing more things on foot and more things by bike. Take I'm taking lots of walks. Taking lots okay. of walks. Yeah. Yeah, so that's pretty much, um, I mean, sometimes they're, they're longer walks. That's pretty, just about every day. I'd say I skip once in a while, but try to get it out for a walk every day. And then I'm lifting weights in my basement oh, that's right. a few times a week. That's right. What do you, ha- what do you have yeah. for your weights? What kind of uh, equipment do you have? I have um, a barbell uh, that a friend got me on uh when when uh he was buying one the person was selling another one and there is a standard barbell is 45 pounds and then this one is 35 pounds and some people call it a lady's barbell but that is not what i call it i just call it my barbell um and then i have a like a like a squat rack like an old beat up squat rack that i actually got from a place called point gym that was closing down their like physical location and they posted you know, so they're doing all remote stuff and they closed their physical location and they were selling all their equipment. So for like 50 bucks, I got the squat rack and then I bought some uh, weights um, or I got some weights from a local like weight place. <laughs> What's it called? Kilo, Kilo Flex, Kilo Flex, something like that. Yeah. So I have, I have the whole 
setup now. And before I've, I find gyms very intimidating. Um, so I had done some stuff in gyms before and used the pool, but now I'm, now I'm actually like doing deadlifts and squats and bench presses and overhead presses. Yeah. So when you say, when you say barbell, is it just a, a bar that's 35 pounds? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and and then this, I, but is it designed to put um, weights onto it if you want? Yeah, you slide weights on the end, and then I use a little clip to okay. hold the weights on. Yeah, and then I try to move them around <laughs> in different ways. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it's been uh, pretty satisfying to lift weights. I particularly like deadlifting. What, what does that mean, deadlifting? Ah, uh, it's basically where you're like. Kind of, oh, Kimber's about to join us here. Okay. It's basically where you sort of um, bend over and you kind of bend your knees. I don't know how to describe it, but it's basically you kind of are, I don't know. You lift All the I know is up, it's very soft. Lift it up to your You're waist just, and that's it? Or Yes. Okay. Yes. Got it. Hi, Kimber. Hi, Kimber. We're talking about weight. We're talking about weightlifting. <laughs> have you As been pumping does. the iron, Joan? I have been pumping the iron. Yeah, well, because Armando asked me if I had been riding my bike, and I said no. And so then I was like, but I have been doing something. There you go. Very nice. All right. Well, welcome, Kimber, to our podcast. We're recording already, so. Wonderful. We're just going right into it. We're going right in. Is that good? Do you need a moment to... To feel the, feel the, I don't know. I don't know what I was going to say. To get the internet connection working. Yes, yes. That's always helpful. All right. How are you? How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. I'm hunkering down, hiding from the rain. It is quite a rainy day. Yes. I, I have also been not on the bike as much because of the rain and such. I contemplated going out today, but... It just wasn't compelling enough to move me out of the house. It, did well, you have it to go out? No. There, that's did right. not have to. Yeah. It would have required a lot of extra external layers. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had the thought, though. I was like, you know, when it's so heavy and raining, it's just kind of one of those, you know you're going to get wet, so why try and prevent it? Just throw on a pair of shorts and a light rain jacket and call it your shower for the day. There we go. So why wear clothes at all? Why not just embrace the hypothermia? Yeah. <laughs> Get it over with. <laughs> just you feel fast enough that core temperature should stay stable. <laughs> yeah. Your hands will be freezing, but your core. Or, oh, or all you just, must, need, even in the you, just time. <laughs> you just need a little like a uh, wind vest, just a little wind vest. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Keep yourself warm. So Kimber, you and I were chatting about you coming on the show. And one of the things that you mentioned, so we've been friends now, I think about three years and uh, you wanted to talk a little bit and I thought it would be great to t- for you to talk about when you started uh, probably not ever riding your bike. I imagine you learned to ride a bike a little earlier that, but that you started kind of riding for transportation when you were in Germany. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in rural Northern California in Humboldt County, which was a wonderfully beautiful place to grow up. Um, but 
being a remote area, low population, public transit wasn't a thing. It was everybody drove cars everywhere. You waited until you turned 15 and a half so you could get your learner's permit. So I, I biked as a small child, sort of up and down my street. I lived about a mile up a hill and then a half mile down a hill. So I think that was also a big deterrent in me using a bike as a form of transportation. Um, so then when I graduated high school, I was fortunate enough to be an exchange student for a year in Germany. And one of the stipulations of my program was you are not allowed to drive a car, um, which really forced me into the world of public transit and biking. I had never taken a city bus before in my life before moving to Germany. So not only am I figuring out this new culture and this new language, but also new transportation methods. And um, my host dad had a spare bike in the storage shed out back that he was just like, yeah, have at it. Use it whenever you want, however you want. And I got in the habit of biking to and from school every day. I don't even know how long it was, maybe five miles or so, one direction. And I, I fell in love with it. It was so fun. It was time to myself to kind of think and be. I could go and explore and wander and go on side paths. Um, where I lived in Germany, I lived in a town called, in a village called Polheim near the city of Gießen, about an hour north of Frankfurt. So like as middle of Germany as you can get. And how it's sort of set up there is all the little villages are surrounded by forest um, that then surround the larger city. And all of those forests have paved trails through them. So you can really kind of go and explore. And one of my favorite things was to just go into the forests and wander and try and get lost and then try and find my way back. And I would do that by foot a lot, by bike a lot. And so biking really gave me the freedom to explore a lot more than I otherwise would have. And it was a great way to do things with friends as well. We'd get together after school and go ride our bikes and get into all sorts of trouble and whatnot. So it was really, it gave me so much more freedom and engagement with the world around me than I'd ever really experienced driving a car. That sounds idyllic, really. Mm-hmm. Because if, you know, so you're in a village, so you're in some place where you can get around to places you need, but then you also have all these woods around you, but you can traverse them on foot or bike. That sounds, you've, you've painted such a beautiful picture that now I want to add Germany to the list of places I want to go biking. Yeah, do a yeah. bike tour. I know you're you're on that groove. We can make it happen. Well, I'm certainly on the groove of talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you do this time of year. This is the talking and planning phase. Mm-hmm. And then yes. once it's light past 7 o'clock at night, we can uh, start transitioning more into action-oriented. Action. Hmm. That's it's that's a yeah we'll see we'll see if that actually happens so wow that's great so wait so you did this when you were in high school how old were you um I was 18 I lived in Germany when I was 18 to 19 Mm -hmm. so was that after you was that your what your last year of American high school or your or after that I did it after so I graduated high school and having previously graduated high school so I graduated in June and I moved to Germany in September 
And so I was still a student. There's the whole student aspect of being an exchange student. Um, But having already been graduated from American high school, I didn't have to fulfill any credits through my schooling there. So I still went to school every single day. Their high, high school gymnasium system is structured a lot more like our university system and that you have certain classes on certain days of the week. So it was a good experience for me to kind of get used to that and going to school, meeting people, talking to people, learning things, but not sort of having the pressure of, oh, I have to do well in school. I think I gave a presentation in my U.S. history class on the American, uh, like, revolution and gave it in the German language, which was a trip. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that would be they're like, and today, our cultural ambassador is your classmate who's been here. (laughs) She's going to talk about a time in her country's history that she wasn't present for either. (laughs) Kimber, what kind of bike were you? Did you ride when you were there? That's a really good question. Um, Having it have been my sort of first experience with bikes, I don't really know if I paid all that much attention to that stuff. Um, But it seemed like your typical hybrid bike. Um, I know that the one thing that just blew my mind about it and I thought was the coolest thing was it had like the Dymo hubs where it had a uh, headlamp on it that was powered by you riding the bike. And I just thought that was the most amazing thing. And I didn't understand why that wasn't standard on bikes. It just made so much logistical sense and safety sense that you didn't have to worry about bringing your light or charging it. It was just always there and working for you. I think bikes, European bikes are considered transportation where American bikes, U.S. bikes are considered toys. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely sort of focus on the sport athletic aspect of it as opposed to the functional yeah so you're saying it was kind of like a what we might think of as like a city bike right like more upright and that's fantastic that it had yeah i think that's uh maybe somebody can will will write and correct me if i'm wrong but i feel like i maybe that's there are a lot more rules and regul. Well, of course, there are more rules and regulations in Germany, but um, around specifically how you're supposed to light your bike, right? Like it's a steady beam. There's no blinking. It's kind of more regulated. So, yeah, that's great. What a great opportunity that was, and it gave you right. So you're experiencing experiencing this different culture, but then also just this different way of living that isn't necessarily something you can only do in that culture. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I remember and then, the, um, I would take the bus home from school because it was my first time ever riding buses. And there was always somebody getting off at my stop until there wasn't. And the bus just drove past my stop. And I was like, what do I do? And I had to wait, I think, two or three stops until somebody, until the, the chime went off that I never really paid attention to. And then they got off the bus and I got off and retraced my route back to my stop and then walked home. And that's how I learned that you have to push the call button to alert the bus driver that, you know, you actually want to get off the bus. They don't just stop at every stop station. <laughs> that is so funny because that is a very, right. Like if you just grow up using the bus, you just see your parent do it or whatever. But like, yeah, cause I think I, I took the bus a few times in high school, but only with somebody who knew what they were doing and then in college I I also I found it really intimidating to take the bus which is 
yeah, that's great. Or I mean, that's pretty funny that you're just like, I'm stuck on this bus. Somebody let me off, you know. I'm going to end up three villages over lost with only a track phone to find right. my back. Like you tried to get lost in the woods and here you are on the bus, totally lost. <laughs> like, scared to take the bus back in the other direction because who knows where you'll end up then. Who knows if you can get up. Right. And then you don't want to call attention to yourself sometimes if you're, you know, because if you're in a different country with other people who maybe look like you, you can sort of, maybe you can pass a little, but then as soon as you say something, they all know you're not from there. Right. Yeah. I would um, take, they would call taxis mini cars. Um, and I would semi-regularly take a mini car home after a night out at the clubs or whatnot, because I was 18 in Europe. I could do that kind of thing. And I would be talking with the mini car drivers the entire way home, having normal conversation. And as soon as I would go, oh, turn right here, they would go, you're not German, because I just cannot say the word right in German. It's too much of a tongue twister can't do it and that was always my giveaway well good for you that they didn't know until then that's very impressive that's very impressive so would you ever do the thing where you would just tell them to go left repeatedly so that you wouldn't have to say the word right unfortunately (laughs) german villages aren't grid systems so there's kind of only one way that you can go Hmm. that's tricky that's tricky i maybe would have thought about you know yeah yeah finding some synonym finding some complicated way they'll never know if i just give them strange and complicated directions (laughs) huh um well what a great experience to have when you were there and then um and then when you left there I know you didn't come right to Portland. Did you have any biking time after that back in the U.S.? Or was that not so much till you got to Portland? Or Yeah, not so much right away. When I got back, I was in Portland for maybe a month or so. Um, while I was living in Germany, my family had moved up to the Portland area. I'd always had grandparents in uh, to town, but sort of everybody else relocated up here. So I moved back to California for a few months and would ride my dad's Cannondale occasionally for sport. Um, I grew up in Arcata, California, and there was a couple miles of what we called the bottoms of just flat land between the ocean and the town. And so that was always my place to go ride because it was flat. It was easy. You could just kind of meander through cow pasture land. Um, But when I moved initially to Oregon. It was to Astoria to go to community college there. And that's when I really got into biking. Initially, I was living out in the country with my aunt and uncle and would drive into town all the time. Um, And then uh, after about a year of that, I moved into downtown Astoria and got a bike and just kind of fell in love with biking everywhere. I had downtown Astoria is really small so I'd walk to school and walk to work and so biking would kind of be my get out and explore a little bit and I remember saving up to get my first bike and doing all of the research and you know thinking about what do I want to use this for and that I think the process of getting my first bike is what really got me excited for biking because it was my first time of thinking about all the possibilities of what I could do on my bike and what a wonderful asset it could be in my life of not just this thing for commuting or sport but for pleasure and enjoyment 
Yeah, you know, that's something really interesting. So not just like, what was your first bike when you were little, but what was the first bike you got for yourself that you picked out for yourself? Because as soon as you said that, I remember the first bike that I got for myself in college. And it's, yeah, so what did you get? What was that bike? I got a Trek FX 7.0. I think it was their hybrid bike. I know that it came in a rim brake and a disc brake style, and I wanted the disc brake so bad. Living in Astoria with all of the hills and the rain, I was like, oh, the disc brakes would be perfect. But at the time, I just wasn't able to afford it. And so that was something that kind of then, again, made me excited for the next bike down the road is, okay, I wasn't able to get the disc brakes this time, but the next bike, that'll definitely have it. Kimber, uh, yeah. Kimber how tall are you? I am 5'9". Oh, okay. Because um, I know sometimes when, when bikes, you have the option of disc or, or non-disc, they, it depends on the size of the bike too. Sometimes. Oh, okay. It it depends on the size of the bike. Like what? So which in which direction do you mean, Armando? If you're really for for taller frames or shorter frames? Shorter frames. They don't. Smaller frames. They don't have disc frames. Disc. They they tend not to make as many options in smaller frames. Oh, so you're just talking about options, not necessarily that it's like, I thought you meant like somehow it didn't, like it didn't fit. No, like no. you couldn't actually manufacture, but you just mean, yeah, no, I see. I see what you're saying. Huh. Um, so, yeah. So then that was your, that was your sort of like big bike purchase and then and then you use that for sort of cruising around and exploring the area a little bit yeah I did my first ever uh marathon ride when I lived in Astoria and that was a huge moment for me I was like I just biked a marathon oh it's on cloud nine for weeks and nowadays I'm like oh yeah 20 miles that's worth getting out of the house for like anything less than that and it's not worth it (laughs) it is amazing how much milestones seem so different right like that just seemed yeah like such a huge distance and huge achievement right and now you're like oh yeah I guess I rode that today as I was out and about on the social ride or whatever hmm yeah, I could do twenty miles. I could do twenty miles a day, but I would really feel it tomorrow. I'm just I just haven't been riding that that long of a distance at all. Yeah, I did my uh sort of ashamedly so I guess, my first and only ride of the year just a few days ago. And I think I did around eighteen miles and I felt it the next day. <laughs> it was an unfamiliar feeling. I hadn't realized how out of condition I was. That happened to me um, a few years ago when I went on sabbatical and I was in Ethiopia for the year. And before that, I had been riding my bike to work pretty much every day. I mean, maybe once in a while I would skip a day, but pretty much I had been on my bike four or five days a week for years. And then I wasn't on a bike for 10 and a half months. And my first bike ride when I came back was not comfortable, (laughs) which I hadn't been uncomfortable like that. Like, like 
not uncomfortable because of just because of the muscles, but uncomfortable just like sitting on a bike. Yeah, I didn't I didn't I mean, it took me it didn't take long to get back up to speed, but it I it I didn't like that feeling of discomfort on a bike because I, I, I was so used to, you know, biking around like I'm a bike person. I shouldn't. <laughs> I should be able to go more than a mile or two without my butt hurting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, but then, and then here in Portland, how long have you lived in Portland now? Um, let's see. It's 2021. So I've been here. This will be my fifth year in Portland. Your fifth year. Yeah, I know time is hard to count, particularly these days. So, and then when, how long did you have that? Was that Trek the one you replaced a year ago or? or Yeah, I wrote that. That was uh, from when I got it in maybe like 2013 in Astoria. I wrote that all the way up until January of last year when it was totaled in a wreck. Yeah, do you want to share that story a little bit and what happened with that? Because yeah, you did get a nice um, new bike out of it. I did. You know, it's something that I feel like so January 6th of last year, I was hit by a car while biking to work. And I feel like it was kind of the catalyst of this mental shift in finding the good and the bad because I do not wish getting hit by a car upon anyone. Um, but out of that experience, I did get to get a new bike, and it was something I was hoping to do, but going to put off for a few months. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so I, um, at the time, was a student at Portland State. It was actually first day of my last term of college courses, and so I was biking to my hotel hospitality job, nice, uh, dark, and early in the morning in a rainstorm my usual everyday commute and um, I had to bike down Northwest 16th um, headed South on 16th and right at Everett there is an on-ramp to the freeway 405 South. And I'm familiar with that intersection because I bike it all the time and cars regularly roll through the red light there to make their right hand turn on the freeway. And unfortunately that morning somebody did as I was in the middle of the intersection. And so the car just kind of pushed me up onto the hood and I fell back onto my back in the middle of the intersection. And it's that I still, I don't have to think very hard to conjure up that image in my head of this car coming at me. And just that thought of, Oh fuck, they're about to hit me. And just the not being able to do anything about it. Um, But I think the scariest bit of it in the moment was afterwards when I was on the ground in the middle of the intersection, I had my backpack on loaded down with all of my school supplies for classes that afternoon. And the weight of my backpack kept me pinned to the ground when I tried to sit back up. So as I'm like lying on the ground trying to sit up and I can't, that's when all of a sudden I'm like, Oh no, what horrible thing has happened to my body. Um, But thankfully no major horrible thing happened to my body. I did bruise my tailbone, um, which was really unfortunate, it being the start of the term and having to sit in classrooms and sit at computers and study. I got creative with my positioning of my body. Um, but it was definitely a rough experience. It 
instilled a lot of fear in me for just being out in the world and the other people out there. And then sort of, there was an aspect of it that made me, I don't know, maybe question the good in people a little bit. I, um, the, the driver, I do have to say, I mean, they did hit me with their car. So, uh, minus points there, but they were very supportive in the immediate aftermath of, offering to call an ambulance, which my American mindset immediately saw dollar signs and said, oh, God, no, please don't do that. Um, They drove me to work the remaining five blocks so I could drop my bike off and start my shift and um, were communicative about it. But then in sort of the aftermath of everything, false information and claims of me not having lights on my bike, um which I did and had photographic proof of that as it being the first day of the school, having pictures of myself um, as we tend to do. Um, But I was really grateful to have uh, Portland state student legal services as an advocate for me. Um, I think the day after my crash, I reached out to them and uh, was assigned a lawyer who was so phenomenal throughout the process of, helping me write literature to communicate with the insurance companies to tell them, no, you're wrong. Like you are at fault for this accident and this is what you will cover. And because there was a lot of the experience that made me sort of questioning my own voice and whether or not I should stand up for things. And so to have a service like that there to help advocate for me was really helpful throughout the process. Do I remember, I can't remember. Did you tell me that they said that, they helped lots of folks dealing with bike wrecks. Is Mm -hmm. that, am I making that up? Yeah. Yeah. I think that was one of, I think they do a lot with sort of renter's rights and then sort of personal injury stuff. And I think bike crashes rank high up there. Yeah. That's interesting. What you say about there's like the moment that you're in this bike wreck where, which is like, a physical experience, but also immediately a mental experience. So you have this pain, this lingers, but then there's also the like hassle of dealing with it, not just not having your bike, but trying to not be held responsible or trying to get money for a new bike or whatever. But then there's also the like way it messes with your head, the whole thing. And it can be really scary and intimidating and kind of hard to get back on your bike again. Um, I remember when I had a bike wreck, I also remember like, I think a lot of people do this thing of like, don't make a fuss about me or whatever. When it's like, it's, it's okay to like get medical treatment. If we get hit by a car, like that's totally, (laughs) yeah. Like that should not be, you know, we should all be able to afford that and all that. So, yeah. And, and so you kind of were dealing with all three things, right? There's the physical discomfort, there's like the logistical hassle, and then there's the like mental kind of trauma and recovery of trying to like move past this thing that happened that makes you like kind of scared. Did it make you like scared to be around cars or did it make you hesitant on your bike? Yeah. Yes. To both counts. I think for the first week after the accident, I 
went on a handful of walks just to be comfortable being out on the streets again, being around cars again. I, at the time, lived in Irvington, so I did a lot of walks on the very quiet neighborhood streets, just like, okay, you're out here, everything's fine, and then would sort of go on to some more high-traffic roads. And then I ended up getting my replacement bike... I think by the end of the month, I bike commuted to work, to school, pretty much everything. So I needed a bike pretty quickly. And I think the process of getting a new bike was really exciting for me because it was something I told myself um, I was supposed to graduate and did graduate from Portland State in March of last year. And so I told myself, I'll get myself a bike as a graduation present. And so the wreck kind of sped up that process, which was exciting for me to kind of get to do all of that. Um, And so having that excitement definitely kind of helped me get over some things, but even then still the first month or two after was just bike to work, bike to school, bike to home, not do a lot of other stuff to build up that confidence and, I did build it up and I do feel pretty comfortable on my bike now. Um, But there are definitely times where it's harder. And I think I do, when I do get triggered by cars, I do think it's a lot worse. Um, Back in November, I was biking up on Savi Island. It was my first time ever like doing the loop around the Island up there. And when I was by one of the pumpkin patches, there was this, um, little red truck that was just right behind me honking their horn really mad that I was in the lane and when they went to go past me inside of a corner they did that whole trying to push you off the road thing and as soon as they got past me and I couldn't see them anymore I pulled over and had like a small breakdown on the side of the road because I was just so overwhelmed by the whole experience whereas I think you know pre crashing my bike via a car I would have just been more angry than terrified well they were trying to scare you and they did right I mean that's why people are are doing that right like they're trying to make you be scared or or intimidate you or whatever yeah definitely so it's I I also found a lot of um sort of confidence on my bike by doing group rides. It's something that I I didn't know bike community was a thing. Um, I heard about critical mass growing up, um, but it wasn't until late 2018 that I got introduced to um, the bike community in Portland. And that was such a wild, wonderful experience for me. I think the first time I was ever in a big group of people and we took the lane over one of the bridges, I was like, wait, we can do this and I feel comfortable and safe doing this. It was so empowering to feel claim to the road and know that there are other people there who feel the same way and who are supporting you in it. It feels really empowering, I think, uh, to be on a big, busy road, like something like one of our busy main roads in a group of cars. Yeah. And so can you talk a little bit about the bike that you did get and how you decided, how you chose that bike is your replacement bike? Yeah, I got a 2019 Salsa Marrakesh. Um, It's a a touring bike, a nice sturdy steel frame, I believe. 
I, while I love bikes, I'm not the most gearhead oriented person. Um, but I got the Marrakesh because I had the year prior done my first ever bike tour. I thought the Marrakesh was a good hybrid of a bike that you could ride throughout the city that wasn't super crazy heavy, um, but still sturdy enough to handle some decent touring. Well, oh, sorry, Amrita, you, you want to go? Did you get drop bars or flat bars? Um, I did get drop bars, though I'm not the biggest fan. I would. My dream is to post COVID get a formal bike fitting um, and kind of get those small details worked out. But I'm think I'm leaning more towards butterfly bars for all of the beautiful hand positionings you can do and all the accessories you can slap on there. I don't know what, but I'm I'm googling that right now. I don't know what a butterfly bicycle bar is. Oh, <laughs> oh, now I know. <laughs> um, yeah, so that would give you a lot of options. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the dog is scratching at my chair so i think he wants you to come over kimber and go for a walk with us <laughs> yeah. he's like tell kimber to get over here we need to go to the park um so the thing the other thing that i um wanted to, oh so was it weird though so did you buy a bike was it during was it before like everything closed down or was it, it was before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I so it was before the big Yeah. So it was kind of, that was another, I, like I said, this whole mm. year has been about finding those positives and those silver linings. And so it was very fortunate that I did get my bike end of January because then once all of the COVID stuff started and people got really into biking wonderfully. So, uh, bikes were harder to come by, so I'm glad that I had options. Yeah, right, because a few months later, you know, all the bikes were gone. <laughs> um, well, so I wanted to ask you a little bit. This is, I mean, I guess the bike rack is a serious thing to talk about, too. But I think one thing that um, has seemed that I've sort of uh, you know, so my life is not that different from before the pandemic in ways that like I have the same job, even though I do it from home. My kids are mostly doing the same thing. Um, and whereas you were basically at this major life transition point right when the pandemic hit. And I feel like for folks who were right, so you graduated from Portland state in like the last couple weeks, we basically went remote at the university. Right. So you were launching into your post-college life, right. As everything was sort of shutting down. And it seems to me that the folks who are sort of at these transition points, that it's been an extra complicated time to be at a sort of transition point right now i don't know this is that's kind of a heavy topic but can you talk a little bit about that because actually what i was going to say is i feel like in a lot of ways you have really made the best of this time and uh it's been a really stressful hard time and i think that there are a lot of folks who maybe in a similar situation have struggled a lot to figure out how to and i feel like you've tried to find some ways to sort of enjoy life 
even during this very complicated time. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I I think I had my last day of college courses ever and my last day of work within the same week. Um, I got I was working at a hotel um, front desk and <laughs> obviously got laid off because uh, people stopped traveling pretty quickly. And so, yeah, that was a really big, like, holy shit moment. I went from having 12-hour days, four to five days a week, to having nothing. And, uh, and at first it was, you know, I kind of viewed it as summer vacation. Like, this was the time off I was hoping to have, and now I don't have this pesky job getting in the way. Um, but I'm also a person who thrives on structure and routine in my life. So losing all of those sort of stability-making aspects of my life was really stabilizing. Aspects of my life was hard. Um, it really forced me to fill my life with what I wanted to fill it with, for better, for worse. And there was definitely challenges in identifying that. And I had initially planned sort of my post-college life. I got my degree in geography from Portland State with a minor in graphic design. And I transitioned into geography later in my college career. So I kind of felt like I'd stepped into this world of possibility but hadn't really spent enough time in it to figure out my niche necessarily. And so I used my now abundant free time to kind of figure out that niche a little bit more. Um, one of the hidden perks to COVID and everything going online is so many more things were now accessible. I think in those first two, three months of the pandemic, I did dozens of online webinars. Um, I just kind of threw myself into that world. I was used to studying and learning, so I just kind of went and rolled with it. Um, but yeah, really using my time to identify what do I want in my life and how can I bring it there and giving myself patience and forgiveness when I w would want to have a lazy day or I would have too many lazy days in a row and then be like, what am I doing with my life to, you know, go easy? Well, and, um, and you did uh, a lot of, you did, I feel like you did at least two or three camping trips last summer, maybe more, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I did a lot of camping, hiking. Um, I, that was a really wonderful aspect of it as well with it being summertime is really getting to spend a lot of time outside in nature and engaging with the world in a different way than I usually had. Um, I'd been on my first ever bike tour the year prior and which also so happened to be my first real camping trip ever. And so it was nice to kind of get back, I won't say back into camping, but get into camping and approach it from a different avenue. And each trip I went on was a little different than the last. And 
I spent two weeks out at Miller Lake just kind of paddleboarding and hiking, trailblazing, finding um, old USGS topo maps and going, oh, there's a trail on that map. Let me go find that trail. And, oh, that trail doesn't exist anymore, but there's these blazes on the trees. Let me follow them and see where they go. So I really got to get a lot of real world experience and a lot of unique engagement that I think is giving me new ways of looking at the world and engaging with it. And you also have, I think, done more of something that you were already doing, right? Which is you were already doing some garden type works and had an interest in that. And like a lot of people during this time, you, you did more and then you've even, You've done some work in my, and I've hired you to do some work pulling out. Armando, did she, did convert? Yeah. Yeah, full disclosure, I've worked for uh, both of my I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, we're your oh, yeah. employers. We're your employers. How's that yeah. backyard looking, Armando? Actually, <laughs> it's not looking too bad. I need to go out there uh, now before spring really hits in and get some of those that are starting to climb back. Yeah. yeah there are folks and there are folks in that this is the time of year to rip out blackberries. It's actually really enjoyable and satisfying to just yank them and the soil's so moist that the whole root ball yep. comes out. If uh, you are, if any of our listeners are folks in the Portland metro area and have some blackberries that they would like removed, I, I can highly recommend Kimber. <laughs> she ripped them all out. I've had, I've gone in and just plucked out a few of the, you know, shoots since, since you just tore through. Um, yes, it's, it's, thank you so much for that work. I mean, I know I paid you for it, but <laughs> you did it so much faster and better than I ever could have done. But you've done, yeah, so you've done some landscaping yeah, work, but you've also that. done some veggie or veggie yeah. gardening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've done a lot of uh, landscaping work. Um, I was fortunate enough to be mostly living in a house at the beginning of the pandemic that had lots of ample garden space that wasn't going to use. So I got to kind of take it over and really get my start in gardening there. And like gardens do, it just kind of took off and planted its seed in me. And it's been a really wonderful thing having multiple properties, but even just any land to get my fingers dirty in. And really what I found is build a relationship with it. And I've learned a lot about the land and learned a lot about myself working in the various gardens that I have been. Gardening's really great meditative time. You can either, you know, get all up in your head and process all of your thoughts or use it to just clear your mind and not think about anything other than the earth that you're engaging with. And I've, um, I've been working at a property down in Milwaukee since last summer. And I just recently started getting back out there with the change of the season. And it's been so wonderful to see how different things are and how, much the personality of the land can change from season to season and working in one area of the yard and getting really familiar with it and feeling like you have an understanding of this property 
and then moving to another place of it. And you're like, this is totally different. It's like a whole other world over here. Um, so it's been really healing and really helpful to get to spend so much time outside. And there's, of course, that instant gratification aspect of it, right? You chop down a whole bunch of blackberry vines and rip them out and your space suddenly looks so much larger or you pluck out all the little weeds and now you have all this bare soil that you look at it and you're like, there's opportunity, there's possibility there. So it's, I can't remember the saying, I think it's one of those old proverbs that has lived throughout history, but is to plant a garden is to believe in tomorrow. It's definitely something to look forward to and give you hope for the future of how is this going to change and how can I help it? Well, one thing that you and I have talked about that I think about, that's something that um, any of us who uh, own a house, um, maybe rent, but prob- no, probably not rent. But if you own a house and you have a yard and with grass, um, something we've talked about is switching, um, trying to move some of your grass over to things that are uh, native grasses or things that are good for pollinators to try to support all the little flying things that we need so much that are, yeah. Yeah. And now I'm like, Ooh, maybe I should go ahead and do that this year. (laughs) Do it. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. I am a, um, I like to call myself an amateur apiarist. I love bees. I first discovered bees or really became infatuated with bees when I was in middle school and colony collapse disorder was becoming a thing. That's how I really first cued into paying attention to bees. And ever since then, it's been a love affair. They're just these wonderful little creatures that are so integral to our environment in a mostly unseen way. We don't really necessarily notice bees going about in the work that they're doing or I feel for a lot of people when they do see them, it's immediately a fear reaction. Um, But I, it's one thing that I, I love is our little fuzzy, buzzy friends. And um, in Portland, there is a organization called the Native Backyard Habitat Program, which at the beginning of the pandemic, I sort of signed up for to come in and help create a vision for um, a house and their mission is to get people to plant native plants in their gardens and landscapes to promote habitat for native species, whether it be birds or pollinators. And one of the things that I think is so great in that is it's, they really focus on the holistic benefits for not just your garden and how it can benefit you and you know what plants do you want in your garden that'll make you happy looking out your window to see but how does that then correlate to how you can help the birds and how you can help the bees and I think they do have a big focus on native bees which is really wonderful as we all know honeybees and hopefully we all mostly love honeybees um, because there is definitely big business for them and moving them around the country to pollinate certain crops and produce the honey that we love to sweeten things with. Um, But honeybees are to kind of put it a little 
crudely an invasive species. They are not native to here. So in certain environments, they can outcompete native bees for resources. Um, so that's why having native plantings can be so important because our native bees have evolved in tandem with these plants. Um, so native bees will go out and pollinate earlier than honeybees will, or they will go out and pollinate in more adverse weather than honeybees might not um, because temperature is so crucial for bees. And one of the things that I find most fascinating and intriguing about native bees is the plethora of species that there are. I think there's over 16,000 native species in the Pacific Northwest and they all fall into these different subcategories. There's leaf cutter bees and there's mason bees and there's sweat bees um, and many more. And they all sort of speak to different traits or characteristics that they have. And many of our native bees are ground nesting bees, which means they don't make these hives that you would expect you would picture when you think of honeybees. They're actually making small little dens under the soil. Um, and many of them are actually solitary bees, which doesn't mean that they're going to fight off any other bumblebee that comes near them. It just means that they provision themselves and their um, eggs alone. They don't have sort of a hive set up and others coming in to help gather resources. Um, so there's just so many fascinating intricacies to native bees. And I think they're a really good lens to help people engage with their natural space to think about it, not just what do I want to see in my garden, but how can those things benefit the other inhabitants of the land? That's, that's great. That's Maybe we should leave it there because that's such a nice, <laughs> nice place to end it. Um, are you, I mean, I was, I was joking. Well, I wasn't joking. I mean, I do think people should hire you, but actually are you, if folks, I mean, would you want to hear from people if they want you to come and? Yeah, definitely. Okay. You know, it's, it's one <laughs> sort of drawback to landscape work is it's really physical work. Mm. Um I've been really finding myself grateful for these longer and longer days, even if it's just a few more minutes. Um, having worked outside so much in these last few weeks, I can tell time via the sun down to like the quarter of the hour, which I'm really impressed with myself with. Um, but yeah, I uh, love working outside and love getting to see different parts of the city as well and what's going on in different neighborhoods and people's gardens. Um, I also recently just signed up via the uh, Black Resilience Fund. One of their ways to engage in volunteers actually through doing yard work. Um, so if there's anybody who is in need of yard work and can reach out through the Black Resilience Fund or who has time and skills to share. I think that's a great avenue. That's fantastic. And of course, that's the um, the Black Resilience Fund is being run by Cameron Winton, who we had on the podcast last fall. So that's great. What a great way 
what a great way to give back. Um, okay, well, if folks want to contact you, they can. Do you want to give contact information, or you want to have them contact? They can. They can maybe find me or contact the podcast, and then we can send them along to you. Is that good? Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, let's get you some work out of this too. So get those. Get rid of those blackberry bushes. It can be. <laughs> I love those invasives. I have a nice red thick cotton coverall jumpsuit that I wear that keeps all the prickers away from my skin also makes me look really badass working in the garden I can attest to this having seen you in the red jumpsuit yeah yeah so maybe you can have like a whole business that's basically blackberry eradication (laughs) that can be like your whole thing working with invasives is kind of a a love-hate relationship because on one hand it's so satisfying to clear an area out and one thing that I do really try and keep in mind when I am working in uh, any garden or on any parcel of land is how I'm engaging with the land and my relationship to it Um, for my senior capstone at Portland State I worked in the learning gardens laboratory And as a part of that, one of the books that we had to read was Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, a phenomenal book that I would recommend to anyone and everyone. And um, Robin Wall Kimmerer is a biologist, an indigenous woman, a researcher and educator who writes about our relationship with the land sort of reconciling all of the various viewpoints that we can have with it and creating a holistic lens and approach to the land. And one of her key things is the act of reciprocity and what you give and take from the land and being really conscious and respectful of that. And so I really try to do that in my gardening, but then you get to those invasives and you're just like, oh, I'm going to rip you out and I don't even care about it. (laughs) So it's all about balance. Right. It's how you can, you can be one with the land by destroying these plants. (laughs) Just the other day I ripped out a clematis ball that was um, the size of like a yoga ball. It was huge. Picture. I saw the picture. Incredible. And, you know, it was a lot of hard work. I was inside of this giant shrub trying to get this thing out of there. And it was a relatively destructive process to try and get this thing out. But then you think about it, and this clematis is now no longer going to be choking out this native shrub that's going to be trying to bloom. And those clematis seeds aren't going to spread to the neighbor's property where they might go unchecked and become this mature plant. So sometimes you have to be a little rough to help out in the end. You have to, you have to kill to protect something like that well i'll put a link to uh, braiding sweetgrass in the show notes so for folks who are looking for that that book and then also to the native backyard habitat program for folks who are interested in that and then people who are interested in hiring you to pull blackberries or clematis roots or whatever can reach out to me or to the podcast and and i will 
pass your contact information along to Kimber. Not that I had you on this the show to shill for work for you, but <laughs> but Armando and I have both greatly benefited from your enthusiasm for destroying invasive. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. To- <laughs> <laughs> no, truly, the pleasure was ours ours together. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. It's been a treat. It's been a treat to have you. Yeah. And of course, I could talk to you for another hour, but we'll do that on our own time. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Okay. All right. Bye. All right. Well, that was fun, huh? Yeah, it's good. That was good. All right. Are you going to, I know you want to run right out now into your backyard and pull out some more. (laughs) In the dark, I don't have a, the, I don't have the big red overalls to protect me. I'm just usually out there in my shorts. Maybe that could be the new look for the Sprocket <laughs> podcast. <laughs> red overalls. Red overalls. Well, it's like a they're more like coveralls, right? Like a mechanics. Oh yeah, that's right. That's you know, it's it. like yeah, long yeah. sleeves. Yeah, you know. Overalls. Yeah, it's more than just overalls. It doesn't just go over everything. It covers <laughs> covers everything all right well we've got some headlines oh yeah i have to figure that out <laughs> what can compare with the thrill of a brand new bike You should you should get this first one because it's uh, it was an article by one of your f- f- favorite people. Oh, okay. I don't know. Headlines verified: More parking puts more cars on the road. Podcast guest Michael Anderson wrote a piece for Sightline, reporting on some new academic research in the journal Urban Studies. Researchers Adam Millard Ball, Jeremy West, Nazanin Rezi. And Garima Desai found that bigger parking lots and more parking mean that people drive more and use transit less. A new study finds that something environmentalists have long suspected but never proven. It's not just that people who drive more choose to live in places where you have to drive more, but projects with more on-site parking induce more auto ownership. You can read Michael's summary, which also links to the Urban Studies preprint. Yeah. So I guess there was something pretty interesting about the methodology that these researchers use. I didn't read the academic article. I just read Michael's summary of it. But I guess the methodology was pretty innovative because they were able to show cause and effect in a little different way, not just correlation. Did that come out today? Did he post that? Just a couple. I don't know. Just within the past few days, that's come out. So within the past, I just didn't didn't get into it. Oh yeah, the twenty eighth. Yeah, Michael seemed pretty pretty jazzed by it. Oh yeah. So yeah. All right. Well, we've got big big news. The news of the year here. What I said this weekend was the biggest and most important headline (laughs) of twenty twenty one. Which of course Armando, you know, responded by telling me about some other national atrocity. But anyway, here's here's this. uh, This is from. Uh, the Verge, and uh, the story is 
The people wanted Lego bike lanes and Lego is finally listening. And this is a a charming story of the efforts of one man, a regional counselor in the Netherlands, to get Lego to improve its bike lanes and its city sets. Uh, There used to be bike lanes and then they went away and the cars were getting bigger and bigger (laughs) in the Lego sets with barely any Just like in real life, with barely any room for active transportation. Yeah. He proposed an idea to Lego. Um, He started on this project a couple years ago in 2019. He proposed an idea to Lego. They have, like, the Lego Ideas website where anybody can submit an idea and get support for it. But And Lego will sometimes adopt these ideas, but very rarely. Um, But he proposed this idea, and so they did a redesign, which was great. It was very exciting. But then... When you actually looked at the redesign and looked at the bike lanes, they had some of the same problems as real life infrastructure. As the story says, the bike lane was small, like really small, only two studs wide, barely enough room for a cargo bike. Now, when they when they're <laughs> saying also, when they're saying the two studs wide, they mean those like the little circles, those little those little Lego dots, the Legos too, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what they call them. That's what they call them. Yeah, right. Like so, just two of those things, right? Uh-huh. Um, which like a human person, like their little legs stick on two of those things. Right. So that's not enough for a bike lane. It's like a human with, uh, yeah. And also the box art depicted a bucket truck parked in the middle of the bike lane, (laughs) which is like a little too true to life. And I think this person was feeling like, yeah, like, how we play maybe influences how we see things. So now he submitted another idea to Lego's idea website uh, to get wider bike lanes that are actually proper bike lanes that could actually fit a few bikes and maybe some people walking. And then um, he's, he's already got some support. So the Verge story links to the Lego ideas website. He's got uh, 2,800 supporters and he has a little more than a year to get to 10,000 supporters. So all of our f- folks who are fans of Legos and bicycling can read the story in The Verge, which we'll link to in the show notes, and also go to the Lego Ideas website. And uh, I don't know how you support it. I'm guessing you, oh, you don't even have to, I don't know if you have to create an account, but somehow, wait. Yeah, you have to create an account account to support it but create an account and uh and do a solid by by lego and and our future (laughs) by supporting this yeah yeah 2845 supporters nice yeah yeah so that's pretty that's a pretty fun thing and 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 you know that's the most important news of 2021 (laughs) (laughs) yeah and if you go to that site you can see some uh, penny farthings uh, Lego penny farthings. I've never seen those before. See, that alone makes it worth it. That alone makes it worth it. All right. Well, so, yeah. should we do an event? I mean, the only event we have is one we mentioned last week, but I think it might be worth mentioning again. Sure. Go ahead. Oh, what's our event music? I'm looking. I'm, I'm, oh. I'm afraid to push some of them because I don't know what the sound is going to be. <laughs> isn't the events one that's Guthrie on the piano the toy piano that's the event music isn't it just start pushing buttons let's see what happens <laughs> okay, <hold on. laughs> 
think that's the ramp music. <laughs> this is like Joan and Armando gone wild. <laughs> oh, there it is. You found it. You found it. You found it. Turn it up. Turn it up. Yeah. Yeah, turn that up. Oh, sound three. Okay, well, I'll just say, I'll repeat, we talked about this last week, but um, podcast guest Courtney Williams, um, who is at the Brown Bike Girl on Instagram, and uh, the New York City Bike Mayor is hosting free bike education classes via Zoom every fourth Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern. I think that's what I wrote down 6 p.m. Eastern. And so um, Courtney's great. She's doing good stuff and she's doing these free classes for folks to learn more about biking. So um, find more about that on uh, the Brown Bike Girl at Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we have any mail this week except for the fact that we just recently noticed a ton of comments on the website going back a few years well we have a lot of different places to uh to obtain information from our listeners so i think now that you and i have joined as co-hosts um we can you know parse some of that responsibilities of that out indeed indeed yeah so people have a have different ways of, of, of getting in touch with us. Most importantly, they can call 503-847-9774 and leave a voice message. Yes. Can't <laughs> because wait for those to start coming in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're very excited about those. I'm going to hire someone to call and leave a message. Oh, sweet. Or maybe, I'll maybe disguise my Kimber. voice. <laughs> yeah, it'll help. <laughs> I'll, I'll pay. I'll pay someone, um, or maybe I can just do my off mic producer voice. <laughs> yeah, you got to sound angry too, though. What am I going to be angry about when I call and leave a voicemail? No, no. I mean, when you do the off mic producer voice. Um, wrap it up. Wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> Did that work? Yes. That <laughs> okay. I'm furious over here. I don't know. <laughs> you two knock it off. All right. Well, I think we did it. <laughs> the Sprocket Podcast is produced at home until we can all get that sweet, sweet COVID vaccine. Our website is thesprocketpodcast.com. Email to thesprocketpodcast at gmail.com. Please, please call or text 2503-847-9774. Twitter and Instagrams at Sprocket Podcast. Thanks to Ryan J. Lane for our theme music. Herbert for our headline sounder. Marcus Norman for graphic design. And thanks to the generous support of our patron supporters and listeners. Shadowfoot, Wayne Norman, Eric Iverson. Cameron Lean, Richard Wazinski, Tim Mooney. Glenn Kubish, Matt Kelly, Eric Weiss. Doug Cohen-Miller, Todd Parker, Chris Smith. 
Caleb Jenkinson, J.P. Cooley, Peanut Butter Jar Matt, Marco Lowe, Rich Otterstrom, Andrew in Colorado, Drew the Welder, Anna, Andre Johnson, King of Division, Richard G., Guthrie Straw, Aaron Green, author of We Were Like Sons and founder of The Regranary, Campsite, Mac Nurse David, Nathan Fulton, Rory in Michigan, Jeremy Kitchen, David Belay, Tim Coleman, Harry Hugel, E.J. Finnernan. Brad Hipwell, Thomas Skadow, Keith Hutchison. Ranger Tom, Joyce Wilson, Ryan Tam. Jason Oftenberg, Microcosm Publishing, David Moore. Todd Grosbeck, Chris Barron. Chris Barron. Chris, Chris Barron. Sean Baird, Simon Pace, Gregory Braithwaite. Ryan Morrow, Dude Luna. Hey, that's me. Matthew Rooks. Kaka! Marshall, Paula at Funatake Cyclecraft. Philip M. Bartondale, no relation. Mr. T, who never really left. Bike Initiative, Kiwana, Sarah G. Adam D., go dig a hole. Beth Hammond. Greg Murphy, Myra Martinez, Oso. Isaac M., David Christensen, 503. Byron Patterson, Kirsten Graham, Aaron G., Rachel Moline. And welcome back to our newest and returning donor, Jimmy Diesel. And thank you to all of our former donors who helped us get this far. Now wash your hands. And wear your mask. Good night, everyone. <laughs>